Good morning, Tricia family, wherever you may be, uh, in the greater part of the Los Angeles area, in all parts of the United States, or in countries all over the world. We welcome you and we are delighted that you are here with us this morning. I had a chance um, to just peek a little bit earlier this morning inside the sanctuary, uh, the newly painted sanctuary, and man, it is amazingly refreshing, and I can't wait for all of y'all to be able to see it um, sometime next year when we get together as a church family in person. Um, I come to you today um, here from Stalder Chapel um, at our church building, and um, it is September 20th, 2020, and um, I come to you being fully aware that these are sobering times. Um, just as I finished preparing for the sermon this morning, and I was looking at the numbers, um, it struck me that we've actually passed the 200,000 death toll mark for COVID-19 in the United States. Um, and then if that weren't bad enough, you hear locally in California about how the wildfires have scorched over 3.2 million acres of land. That's like the size of Connecticut. Um, 24 dead, about 4,200 building structures brought to the ground. Um, and if that wasn't enough, Friday night, we all were uh, awoken and jolted with a 4.5 magnitude earthquake that I think woke most people up around 1139, uh, a couple miles um, away from South Almani. So not far away from where many of the people who come to our church actually live. Um, I love the way um, one of my friends yesterday put it, right? Like you think you can count on some sense of permanence and comfort, but this week particularly has been just more trying and more frustrating and, and more daunting than ever before, right? Um, if, you know, if you couldn't do first the outside social gatherings because of COVID-19, well, all right, that outside public spaces were kind of restricted for mass gatherings. So then you thought to yourself, maybe at least I can hang out in my backyard or, or go to the park. And then the wildfires set in and make the air quality horrible. And that gets taken away from you. And so you think you can shelter in the comfort of the inside of your house. And then the earth starts moving and you have an earthquake. And then you think to yourself, man, it, I can't even be inside my home without feeling at rest. Um, so this, this idea of feeling unsettled and not, not being comfortable, not having a place of permanence, um, whether it be outside among the masses, just in our backyard, or even in our own homes. Um, you can see why this la last week in particular here locally for us has been really, really trying. Um, it's no wonder why the last few weeks and months we here at VCF, the preachers from this pulpit, have been preaching and teaching about what Pastor Cole just referred to as the wilderness experience, right? Where the, the immediate future and, and certain plateaus to come just are being questioned and we don't really, really know. You know, I, I wish I could tell you as a doctor, 
uh, as a family medicine doctor at Kaiser who's been practicing for about 15 years, I wish I could tell you with certainty when this global pandemic is going to come to an end, when for sure we will have that vaccine for COVID-19 that will kind of bring us uh, bring us home and, and bring us to the day where we can take off the masks and shake hands and stop social distancing. I wish I could tell you definitively when that's going to happen. We think early part of next year, uh, mid part of next year, but I really don't know. And I have to function as a physician in that space of uncertainty. Um, you know, as a dad, I would love to see my two kids playing in our backyard. Like, that's one of the favorite things they love to do. But, you know, that that had been taken away from them. Because I just don't know if the quality of the air they're breathing the last two weeks is, is really going to cause irritation and reactive airway disease and allergies and all sorts of badness. And the earthquake on Friday made me think, should I get earthquake insurance for my home? Um, because I don't have it. And uh, and so we've been hearing about the big one that's going to happen for the last 30 years or so. So a lot of uncertainty, um, a lack of permanence. And, and I think it's very, very appropriate this morning as I prayed into what the Lord had for us as a congregation um, that we dive a little bit more into the season of wilderness, right? Um, and so today we're going to actually be diving into the Word of God, um, into this space, into this wilderness experience once again that God's people, the nation of Israel, went through um, from the time that they escaped uh, the oppression of slavery and captivity in Egypt to when they arrived at the promised land in Canaan. Um, what we're talking about today is going back to a time period around maybe 1446 BC or so, um, a time when the exodus um, of God's people out of Egypt really began. And what would follow for the next 40 years, as many of you know, um, is a wandering in the Sinai desert before entrance into the promised land of Canaan. Now, this journey was only supposed to, theoretically and geographically, supposed to take somewhere between three to four weeks um, if, if they kind of had traveled in a straight line. Um, but instead of it taking three to four weeks, the journey wound up taking 40 years. And along this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, um, God would take them through different stations. Um, I believe it's 42 uh, to be exact. And for those of you who want to actually dive into each different station, um, tonight, take a look at Numbers 33. And there's a beautiful recounting of all the different stations. Um, and we'll be getting a glimpse of that at FallCon this year um, on Saturday. So I, another plug to hope that you guys can can join us for the fall, con, fall feast um, that God has prepared for us later this October. Um, now, bear in mind, we're going to dive into a time when, when God's people had just escaped Pharaoh's captivity in Egypt, right? The year is 1446. The people of God had been in this oppressive situation, slaved for, enslaved for 400 years, and, um, and they are brought out of this space, uh, under the leadership of Moses. 
And what's interesting to note is that Moses' name actually means drawn out of the water. And this is very, very important because so much of Moses' destiny would have to do with the water, right? Whether it's it, the, the place in which he was taken by Pharaoh's daughter and so named. And then subsequently, um, the miracles and wonders and signs that he would would perform uh, in his 120 years of life would have very much to do with the water. Um, and and what we're going to dive into today uh, by the waters of, of Meribah is no exception to that. Now, the nation of Israel, basically once they get out of captivity, what's striking is that not soon afterwards... Um, their grumbling starts. I mean, we've been in this season of grumbling as a nation, uh, but their grumbling starts very quickly after they get out of captivity, right? And, um, and, and the ironic thing is they had just seen God perform signs, wonders, and miracles. They had seen what it was like for a living God to, to hit the nation at, of Egypt with with multiple plagues, right? They had seen God's presence uh, in a cloud and 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 a mass of fire leading them. Um, they had seen Moses part the Red Sea, right? These are unprecedented events in the history of man. They have borne witness to that, and yet, despite seeing all those miracles, the grumbling starts. The grumbling starts as they enter into this land uh, of wilderness as they make their trek over to the promised land. Now, the first thing that happens that scripture recounts um, is that uh, they come into uh, a water, uh, the waters of Marah, and it's a very bitter, sweet-tasting water, and they start grumbling. They start grumbling to Moses. And and what Moses does is he actually takes a, a, a piece of log and he tosses it in there, and the water turns sweet as a response um, to the mumbling, uh, to the grumbling of the people, and so the people are able to drink this bitter water that has now been turned to sweet, more palatable to the tongue, and and that's that's where we begin to kind of see the beginning of this interplay of the people of God grumbling and Moses stepping in. Um, on behalf of the people and inviting God into their need. Not too long after this incident, in the second month, um, as scripture recounts, Moses is leading what historians believe are about three million people um, through this Exodus journey in the wilderness. Um, they begin to grumble again in the second month. Scripture recounts, if they said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, right? Um, there we sat and, and there were lots of pots of, of meat and all the food that we wanted, Scripture says. Um, that's what the people recounted. They, they had forgotten the bitterness of slavery and somehow they seemed to, to, to hold on to images of some access to food that they had. Um, but they say, Moses, you brought us into the desert to start this entire, to starve this entire assembly to death. Um, and so how does God intervene, right? As the grumbling continues, he basically uses, um, Moses to say, you know what, guys? 
I am going to give you quail and manna to satisfy your hunger and your thirst. Right. And so by the by the evening time, quails would descend down um, as a source of meat, uh, of sustenance for the people. And by the morning time, as the dew lifted, there would be these white flakes in the ground for people to run and gather. That would be their manna. Um, scripture talks about these white flakes um, tasting like coriander um, and um, and that this this. And they were like wafers made of honey. And so God was starting to train his people in this wilderness. He even says, you know what, guys, we're going to do, I'm going to have you move a certain way. I don't want you to collect too much. I want you to only take what you need for that day and that day alone. And then um, knowing that by morning time, it's going to go go foul. So just take enough for that day. What did the people do? They started hoarding. All right. They started hoarding and they would, and despite God's warning, they would try to hoard more and more each day only to realize that in the morning, the food had turned into maggot infested uh, substances. Um, God tried to train them again. He said, you know what? I want you to collect for for six days, and on the sixth day, go and collect a double portion because I want to train you in this wilderness to observe the Sabbath. I want you to take the seventh day and I want you to rest um, because this is a part of the way I am training you to be a people in a covenant relationship with me. What is holy to me, what is important to me, is that you observe the Sabbath day. So I'm going to practically, supernaturally intervene into your reality, and I'm going to give you double portion. You can collect double portion on the sixth day, so that on the seventh day, you'll have enough food prepared to eat. And you know what? Despite God's clear words through Moses, guess what the people did? Some of them tried to go on the seventh day and gather things either quail or manna, and much to their surprise, there's none that descended from the heavens. And so all of a sudden, you know, this is the background that we're we're, we're beginning to see as we enter into the, the portion of scripture that we're going to dive into first today. This is their MO, right? Their method of operation of the nation of Israel. They grumble when God provides, and with the provision comes discipline and training, they selectively decide to disobey him over and over again and and thus find themselves um, in a space where they don't really enter God's rest and they continue to, to anger and upset God and obviously Moses as well. This is the background that we're marching into. Now, before we just run and start bashing the nation of Israel and looking down on them and being so critical of them, you know, just look at our reality, right? Just look at our reality in the last six months, what we've been doing as a nation, okay? As a first world nation. Um, you guys have obviously seen the craziness with the hoarding of the toilet paper and the supplies. Um, I I want to say that that myself and my wife are exempt from this, but we're not. We ourselves went to Trader Joe's and, and we bought 
some stockpiles of meat and other things, and despite putting it in the freezer, um, it spoiled, and and we had to throw it away, and it was sort of a rebuke on us. So we are just as guilty of this. So, um, you know, I, I I'm a big sports guy. I love watching my Dodgers and Lakers, and and right now, you know, I'm so happy as a distraction that we could potentially be in a space where we can win a, a, a championship in baseball and basketball in LA for the first year since 1988. That could really happen this year, right? The Lakers are doing really well in the playoffs, and I would love to have been able to go to a game at, at Staples Center and cheer them on, or I would love to have gone to Dodger Stadium and cheer on the Dodgers, and and this is my grumbling, right? When I grumble about these things to my friends and family in other parts of the world, they look at me with nothing short of cynicism, and they say, man, you have got a first world problem, right? Welcome to our reality that we've known for decades and all our lives, and you people in the United States are getting a snapshot of what we in Africa or what we in Sri Lanka or what we in India um, go through every single day uh, for our lives. And so it's been very humbling to speak to them in, in many ways. This is not to diminish what a lot of suffering that's going on in this country with millions of people losing jobs and livelihoods, but relative to what's been going on in many parts of the world, um, this this seems like the suffering is 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 on a and sort of on a different scale altogether, and so it's in this background that we jump into scripture today, and um, and we're going to post up the scripture. We're going to be examining two stories, two snapshots of what happened in this forty year journey through the wilderness. We're going to first look at. Um, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 17. And if you guys have your Bibles open, just know that later we're going to be jumping into Numbers uh, chapter 20. And so we first pick up the story today from Exodus chapter 17. Um, and if you guys are wondering where in the 40-year journey this is, this, historians believe this is about the second or third year of their 40-year journey. And um, read with me, if you will, as I read out all of chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The Word of God says, So the whole Israelite community set forth from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink, Moses replied. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for people to drink. 
So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? That's the million dollar question, right? That's the question that's on the tip of believers and non-believers alike. Um, has the Lord neglected us? Is he with us in the same way that he was in January of 2020? Is, is, has something changed about his nature here in September? Masa and Meribah. If you look at the meaning of those two Hebrew words, Masa means testing and Meribah means quarreling and, and, and there's a very significant reason why Moses calls this place Masa and Meribah, right? Because this is where the testing and the quarreling happened um, with, with the Lord and among the people. It just really reminds us of our national attitude right now as we survive this pandemic, right? Despite God's providence to our nation, that question is being asked over and over again. I hear it from my patients. I hear it from my family members. I hear it from church folks. I hear it from atheists, ironically. I hear it from people of other faiths as well. Um, has God, is, is God still among us? Um, and, and the thing is, you see, we're in a space right now where there's this heightening of quarreling and testing among so many different groups. Right, This being an election year, you see the heightening of the quarreling and the testing um, among um, quarrelings, especially among political parties, right? And you see it among racial and ethnic lines and among social class divides. Um, just you know, just the reality of the fact that the healthcare disparities are so great between different ethnic groups and different classes, um, and it has led to a lot of a lot of quarreling, some justified. Um, and most troubling for me, most troubling for me, is that among people of faith, brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? Believers, professors, people who profess to have given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and have given him the throne in their lives, right? Among these people, what's most troubling to me is that it seems like the quarreling and testing is is the most intense in, in this group, right? The testing of the Lord is starting to manifest itself in very unique ways in this time in history, right? Um, what do I mean by that, right? We have, uh, we are living in a space and time where we have church leaders who are encouraging congregations to completely dismiss recommendations of health officials simply because of political party affiliations or other agendas, right? You've heard the term, they're banking on divine protection and asking people to do things like freely congregate, mask-free, without any social distancing, all the while claiming that they are making a statement of faith, um, where in fact 
they actually may be moved by other motives that are not so Holy Spirit-led. I'm not going to mention names here this morning. I'm not going to mention congregations. You guys are all following what's going on in the media, so you know all a lot of the main players um, that I'm referring to. Um, but but the quarreling and the testing um, is is so so relevant to our times right now, like ever never before. Going back to God's word in Exodus 17. You know, their need was real. This is not to minimize the realness of the need. They were thirsty for water. The people were thirsty for water. Um, I can tell you as a medical doctor that the human body really can't go more than 72 hours um, without an active source of water before going into severe dehydration, without going into multi-organ failure, from hypotension and hypoperfusion of the different organs in the human body. This is a basic, basic, basic human need. That's how the God of the universe has created us. We need water. 60 to 70% of our entire body is based on water. And so um, you need it. You need a great source every 72 hours. Otherwise, we will die. Um, and so this need, need was very, very real. This was not a frivolous, ridiculous request that the people were making. Um, this was a very basic thing. And their frustrations were starting to mount, and Moses was feeling the pressure. And, and he says to God, God, they are, they are ready to stone me. Um, this is coming to a climax. And um, I think what, what, what we have to really bear in mind is that Moses had been chosen, right? And he had been placed by God in this place of spiritual authority over these three million people. But he's feeling that tension and, and as he's trying to lead this people group in an area where the resources are so scarce. And, and I think pastors today especially can relate to this tension point, right? Where they feel forced to choose between the economics and operations of their church and their flock's medical well-being, right? All the while trying to discern, how do I feed my flock in these trying times, in this wilderness experience? And to whom much is given, much is expected. And so to whom much authority is given, much responsibility is expected. Right. I realize as a teacher of God's word, uh, whether I like it or not, the standards that I'm held to by the living God is actually higher than somebody who doesn't preach God's word. That's why in the book of James 3.1, the word of God actually says that, you know, those who teach should be few because you're going to be held to a higher standard. And so that is a burden that people who teach and preach God's word carry. But I'm not going to let other people off the hook. For every one of you who are sitting at home today, this is not a burden that is restricted to pastors and the clergy. This is not Pastor Coe's issue. This is not an issue just for the preachers here. It is actually a burden that rests on all believers. And if you don't believe me, um, just take a look at what Paul says in the New Testament. He say, he refers to himself and, and those advancing the gospel. We are Christ's ambassadors. 
What is an ambassador? As believers, we are the ambassador of Jesus Christ, right? What does an ambassador do? He or she represents the heart and the values and the concerns and the cares of a people, group, or kingdom to another set of people. And so we are, we as believers are thought to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And with that ambassadorship comes responsibility. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen people. That's you. That's each and every one of you sitting there at home today listening to this. Right? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Now what I want us to wrestle with this morning is what it means to deal with the real responsibility that comes with living in this radiant light, in this wonderful light. There's a responsibility that we have as believers that come with living into this wonderful light. I want us to jump back to verse 5 of the text. Okay, the Lord answered Moses, right? He tells Moses, walk on, and, and when Moses comes to him, what do I do, God? They're ready to stone me. God simply tells Moses, walk on ahead of the people, all right? Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and don't forget to take the staff that you had used um, in your experiences with the Nile, and um, and and I'm going to go before you, and I'll stand there by the rock at Horeb, and, and I want you to strike that rock and water will come out for the people to drink. So scripture says Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, when you read it, I want you to read it recognizing this, that Moses in this instance actually executed God's pl- command to perfection. He just did it. Right now, the Moses of old, right? If you if you know the Exodus narrative, uh, the Exodus narrative, the Moses of old was a very meek guy, right? He was the guy that would have probably pushed back um, in years past and said, "You know what, God, I'm not qualified, and I have no credibility among the people, and my speech is kind of poor. Can you just send somebody else to do this?" Um, Because this is what he did when God first called him uh, when he was grazing shepherds, sheep, um, and he appeared to him in a burning bush and and told him what he wanted, and he threw down um, the request to Moses, and Moses pushed back with all these excuses initially. But this time, Moses did not hesitate. He had had a whole decent lifetime of experiences with with God to know how faithful God uh, God is in equipping those who he calls. And so we find that Moses doesn't hesitate one bit. And he also doesn't really let the frustrations, I mean, of the people, like it must be really annoying to have three million people wanting to stone you, Right. Um, to be constantly grieving you, to be constantly telling you, look, you are a fearless leader. You brought us out into this desert with the promise of a promised land, but we are always thirsty. We are always hungry. We're always on the move. We have no rest. 
Um, and it would have been better for us to die in slavery than to than to perish here uh, of thirst and hunger. It must be so annoying to hear that from one person, let alone three million all the time. So I feel Moses' pain, but yet in this instance, he doesn't get overwhelmed by the people's anger, right, and frustration. He just follows God without any hesitation and without any modifications. He just simply did it. Now, church, this morning, um, you know, I know Moses had his staff, right? And God has given each and every one a unique set of talents, abilities, and an anointing. And we each have our own instruments, right, through which that anointing flows. And um, I want us to ask ourselves this morning, when was the last time that you um, simply followed an order that the Lord actually gave you, right? Without hesitation, without overthinking it, the Lord just impressed something on you and you just did it, right? When was the last time you moved this way? Hopefully, for many of you, you can say that you did that this week or even this morning or sometime in your recent history. You know, there, God moves in such a way. We talk at VCF all about all, all the time about keeping pace with God, right? What does it mean to keep pace with God? There are times when God actually tells each and every one, this is the time to move. The iron is hot. Strike it now. Strike it now. Because if you don't strike when the iron is hot, you will miss out on what God has for you in that specific moment of history. And you will miss it. You will absolutely miss it. Now, Yeah, you can say God in his redemptive love will cushion that, and he probably will, but you will actually miss out on that precious thing that God has for you at that moment. And I'm telling you, in my experience, in my walk with other believers, Christians are notorious are notorious for missing the mark. They are notorious for failing to strike when the iron is hot. When God says, move, strike, they step back and they say, oh no, but let me think this through. Let me go through and consult multiple people. Let me think through all the theological pros and cons of it. And by the time they get through all of that headiness, the precious thing that God has for you in real time has gone has disappeared, right? I remember, I recall, I know having prayed with some of you here in our congregational bodies, right? And um, and, I, I, and I, I have spoken prophetically into the lives of some of you. And, and, and I have seen the fruit of what's happened as some of you have latched onto that and marched out in faith. And I've also seen what's happened when you have wrestled through it, thought it through, and decided not to to receive that word, prophetic particle. Now, I'm not saying at all. I am. I am that. I want you all to test in your spirits whenever somebody prays over you, uh, whenever somebody speaks a word for you uh, from the Lord. You should always, always test it yourself as a believer. Okay, and if that resonates with your soul. Um, then act on it. 
I have actually talked to some of you where you've been in situations where the wife or the husband has actually resonated with it, but the other spouse convinced them out of moving, right, in, into that. And then they tell me three months later or six months later, oh, man, I wish we had put an offer on that house on that specific month you told us to. I wish we had put our put our had our children move this way with regard to this issue. I wish I had gone for that promotion, um, and I wish I had taken that time, that opportunity to get that degree. Um, and for whatever reason, you talked yourselves out of it. All right, I am not immune to this. Okay, I will tell you, four years ago. Uh, a friend of mine who's walked with the Lord I actually respect a lot actually gave me insight into a certain stock, right? And I just started kind of figuring out the stock market. And and he told me, Sanjeev, you know, this is not insider trading, but I've been watching climates and patterns, and I really think this is about to take off. And, and, you know, if you're starting to learn how to get into the stock market, you should actually invest right now at this time. And I actually prayed about it, and I actually felt the release to do it. But it just seemed like a big stretch because our, our, our baby girl was about to be born, and I just didn't want to take that additional risk. And so I cowered down, and I shrunk away, and I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to pass, even though I felt the 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 lord saying go for it right and and i and i missed out i missed out 6 months later he called me and said i hope you invested in what i told you cuz look at the numbers now and i sheepishly just put my face down and i said no i missed out i missed out you know as a as a physician uh, practicing at kaiser in our family medicine department we often call it the art of medicine Right, uh, because there's a lot of areas in medicine where there aren't any clear-cut answers, where it isn't a black and white kind of thing. You kind of have to function in shades of gray. And as you're walking through patients, when a diagnosis is unclear, or if there are multiple possibilities for a diagnosis and different treatment options, you don't, you can't definitively tell them that I have randomized controlled placebo trials to say this, take this course A or course B. There just isn't enough data. And so you have to function in the, in the space of gray. All right. This is what they call it the art of medicine rather than the science of medicine. Because you have to know how to function in the, in the world of this art. And there are many times where I will hear as I'm talking to a patient in a room I, and, and I'm discussing with them sort of, okay, we think we know the diagnosis and here are different treatment options. And I will lay it out. I will do my due diligence as a doctor and give them there's option A, B, C, D. Um, and I will hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit say, Go with B. Go with B for this patient. I will hear it in my soul. I can't always rationalize it for you or provide the empiric evidence for why why that is coming. I can't even figure it out in real time except that I hear it in my spirit. Go with B. Go with B. And I've gotten better and better over the years of saying, 
Mr. So-and-so, I think the, the best option for you of all the possibilities I've laid out is go with B. And I'm telling you to go with B because the God of the universe just dropped that in me, right? I don't have anything else to back it up. They all seem like good choices, but the God of the universe is just dropping that into my heart, and I hope you will receive that, right? I'm getting better at it. I'm not great at it yet, but I'm getting better at it because I have to fight everything in me um, that, that, that tries to process it a different way through my mind. And so, um, so yeah, um, let's, let's move into the second incident, the second portion of scripture that I want us to look at um, that starts off very similar to the first, but there's a very different ending, okay? If you guys have your Bibles, um, you turn with me uh, to Numbers chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 here. Now, bear in mind, Moses got it right in the, in the first place, in, 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 this, in, in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 17. He gets it right in the second and third year of the wilderness experience. But let's contrast that to the place where we're going now in Scripture. We're going to Numbers, chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. And um, if you guys want to know where this is in, 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 the, in the biblical narrative, this is happening around the 40th year now, around the 40th year. And, and if you want the biblical evidence to support this, go and look at Numbers 33 tonight, where, where the different stations are listed. And you will see that there's, there's, there's the event that we ta- just talked about in Exodus 17, then all these other stations and different things happen, and then there's a reference made to what happens in the 40th year in Numbers 33. But we're going to look at Numbers 20 right now, and it's a very similar context, uh, but something markedly different happens in verse 10, and I want us to pay attention to that. All right, um, let's read that together. Uh, Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Now, in the first month of the whole um, Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam, as you know, Moses' sister, died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and his brother Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Hmm, Sound familiar? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain, no figs, grapevines, pomegranates. There's no water to drink, right? The grumbling cycle happens all over again. Verse 6 tells us that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and they fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Notice what he says. He says, take the staff, you and your brother gather the assembly together and just simply speak. Just simply speak. To the rock. Don't take your staff, but just simply speak to the rock. Um, 
and before their eyes and it will pour out water. You don't need to do anything else, Moses. You just need to speak to the rock and you will bring out water um, for the community so that their livestock can drink. And so Moses, in verse 9, took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded. So far, so good. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. So far, so good. And Moses said to them, here's where things get interesting. Listen, you rebels, must we bring, must we bring, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff, right? Water gushed out. And the community and their livestock drank. So the anointing was still upon him. The provision still came. But he did some things very differently, right? And and verse 12 goes on to say, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Wow. Wow. Now this is quite, quite explosive. And I want to just be honest with you um, about this because... um, in my, I became a believer when I was 15. And for most of my Christian life, up until maybe about five years ago, this bothered me a lot. This really, I wrestled with God a lot about this, right? Why would God do this to Moses? Why would he, den- it seems just so mind-boggling unfair, right? Like it, it just, if you read Deuteronomy 34, Moses is talked about as a prophet like none other in the nation of Israel. Like there's no other prophet that had performed the volume of signs and miracles and wonders, right? So many good things is attributed to this man of God. And yet, God denied him probably the deepest longing of his heart, which was to take this people whom he had been leading out of slavery, tolerated all their whining and and frustrations and anger and all of that for 40 years. And, And yes, Moses was like 120 years old, but God, couldn't you have just let him take one foot into the promised land as as a thank you from heaven, as a wink down from heaven, as an affirmation of your child to say, well done, my good and faithful son, here's the promised land. Now die and come and join me in heaven, right? Just give him one day, give him one moment, give him one minute to cross the Jordan, enter into Jericho and claim the promised land that he had so labored for. And the thing that upset me even more was that as I considered the life of Moses, there were many other things that he was not so perfect at, right? Like there were many other moments of defiance that either had angered God or his people that could have disqualified him to enter into the promised land, but none of those things did. 
If you're wondering what I'm thinking about, he killed an Egyptian and, and two of his, two of his Hebrew people actually noticed that happening. And yet that killing the Egyptian did not disqualify Moses from the promised land. All right. Now Moses winds up marrying Zephorah. And scripture is not clear if, if she, she was from the Midian tribe, but it's, but later in, in Exodus, we find Aaron and Miriam actually scolding Moses for having married a Cushite or an Ethiopian woman, right? Somebody out, outside of his immediate Hebrew tribe. We're not really sure if they were referring to Zephorah or maybe if he had a second wife, but he was being scolded for that by his own family. And yet that did not disqualify him from the promised land, right? They they were seen as sort of a defilement from his own people, but that didn't disqualify him in the eyes of God from entering to the promised land. That prize was still in play, all right? Then there's that time when, you know, he fails to, he angers God by failing to circumcise his son Gershom, right? And, and, and actually it's his wife, Zephora, that comes to the rescue and does the circumcision for, for his son Gershom and, 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 and assuages and makes the anger of God towards Moses go away. Like, Moses screwed up right there, but that didn't disqualify him from entering the promised land. You know, the, the, and, and, and all the meekness and the hesitance that he showed when he, when the first calling came upon his life, um, to, to go and speak to Pharaoh, all the pushback that he gave God, that didn't disqualify him from the promised land. So if all those infarctions and acts of defiance didn't, it just really bothered me for like 20 years of my life as to why was this such a big deal to God? Why was this incident here in, in, in Kadesh such a big deal that it cost him entrance into the promised land? As we, and I've been wrestling with this, and I will tell you the amazing thing about wrestling with God over your lifetime, over scripture, is that in different seasons of your life, God will actually open your eyes to see things in different ways. You can read all the commentaries, listen to all the sermons, but your eyes may not be opened in a certain season. And, and that's, that's the amazing way how, how God can actually operate with you. Um, so there is wisdom in getting older. Um, so I want to point out three things here that I think are very, very, very precious for all of us um, to, to really wrestle with in, in figuring out the answer to this question of why Moses was disqualified out of the promised land. I want you to look at um, the phrase that he uses first when talking to the nation of Israel. He calls them, you rebels, you rebels, right? He's filled with anger and rage, you rebels, right? This, I want to say, was not representative of God's attitude towards his people at that time. Right? You don't find in, in the, in the text here, God saying he was angry with, with the people. There's no mention of that. Yet, what Moses does is that, um, he said in verse eight, God tells Moses to speak and bring water out so that the community and their livestock could drink, right? Scripture doesn't say that God was raging with anger 
at the provision, right? God did not want his provision to convey rage and anger. That was Moses adding on unnecessarily to what God was actually doing, right? And God is very, 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 very serious about not adding or taking away from his words. We are all his ambassadors. We are a royal priesthood. God has chosen us to be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. And so we better get this right. When God wants us to impart something to the world, we better catch his intent and his heart. And we better guard against mixing in all our frustrations and emotions into that response. Because we are representing a holy God. Okay, if you look, if you read through the book of Revelations, Revelations 22, John at Patmos is, 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 is getting this revelation and, and he says this in verses 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy in this book, if anyone adds to them, right? God will add him plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away um, from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. You can't add or take away from God's holy word. And I think that goes, that's very relevant to every way in which God speaks to us and asks us to be an instrument to represent him to the world. We do not get the benefit of editing God in any way, shape, or form. We don't get to add our emotions. We don't get to subtract or delete from from God's, God's love and justice in any way. We are to be instruments that deliver and represent God um, as best as we are able to without diluting God in any way. Deuteronomy tells us, you shall not add to the word that I commanded you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Proverbs says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And I want us to think about this church in the context of modern day Christianity here on September 20th, 2020. How many of our leaders, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic, are misrepresenting God from the pulpit? I want us to sink, let that sink in. I don't, for those of you who are wondering, I don't claim any allegiance to any political party. I don't vote along party lines. I don't subscribe to any particular politician. This, this, the word of God, this is my moral compass. This is what sits on my throne when I come to decision making. And so please know that I'm coming at you this morning without any particular political persuasion. I just come at with, I just come to you today wanting you to really, really ask the question when you are looking at people, when you're receiving God's word, 
asking the question, is God's word being misrepresented in any way, shape, or form? You know, I have been watching the last few months how I've seen preachers, some who I've received from in the past, who will demonize health authorities, who will actually be critical of other churches, who will actually blindly follow one politician or another and and subscribe their allegiance to a certain figurehead rather than that of Jesus Christ. And they accept everything that comes from that person or that political party as God's truth without filtering it through the lens of God's word. And that is a serious, serious problem because these people are affecting the masses and, and I have conversations with people from all walks of life who will quote and tell me things. Um, and, and oftentimes they're filled with scripture and, and, and yet their heart is in a very different place. I read a Facebook post yesterday at midnight that just jarred me. It was written by a man who said these words. He said, I am so tired of people and preachers lips full with scripture, but their hearts are full, filled with hate. Right? That juxtaposition. You may know how to recite scripture inside out. You may have the authority of being able to preach from a pulpit. God, God may have given you that anointing, and yet your heart is filled with hate. How do you reconcile that? And even more, are you able to recognize that dissonance, that discordance, when people are saying things that don't line up with the Spirit of God, with God's Word? Or are are we just blindly following them? God makes a big deal here with Moses. You misrepresented me. You misrepresented me. I don't care that you have actually guided three million people. I don't care so much that that you've done all these signs, wonders, and miracles. I've caused, I've used you to part the Red Sea, to play a pivotal role in church history. But guess what? You misrepresented me when it most mattered. And therefore, I still love you, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. You are going to miss out. On, on the richness that I have for you in terms of being able to go into the promised land. I want you to look at the second point. He uses the word, must we, must we bring you water out of this rock? And by we, I'm assuming he's talking about him and Aaron. At what point does Moses think that, that the ability to bring water forth from the rock rests on him and Aaron? Must we, must we, he doesn't say must the living God, must the God most high, must Yahweh. No, he says, must we bring you water out of this rock as if it were man's provision, not God's. This is the second point I want to make, right? Moses basically points to the provider as himself rather than giving God glory in this scenario. You know, how many times do we have gifts, talents, and anointing and we somehow wind up bringing attention to ourselves rather than glory to God? And sometimes we look for secret ways to shine. 
right? We position ourselves both consciously and unconsciously in ways to shine. Must we, must we, you know, I, um, I, this has direct bearing on me as a physician because in my first few years of practice, um, when I would come to crossroads and not know what to do, I would pray into situations about how to help help manage patients, right? Especially when we're sitting in the gray zone. I would pick up the phone, call my cardiologist, my pulmonologist, my nephrologist, all my specialties. And sometimes even with all their amazing talent and know-how, like we can't figure out exactly what the next step is. And, um, and then as I pray into the situation, God will actually drop something in me that I will actually ask the patient to consider. And in the past, I was sort of just kind of timid in, 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 in saying where that came from, right? And so I would tell them, let's try this medication. Let's go with this diagnosis um, and, and move like you have this. And the, the, the amazing thing is I would start to get calls from people um, over the years my cardiologist buddy would pick me up. How did you make that diagnosis? I totally missed it. My pulmonary friend would call. How did you make that diagnosis about the lungs and put that together? Because I totally missed it. My kidney doctor would pick up the phone. How did you figure out what was going on with his kidneys when, as a primary care doctor when I as a specialist missed it? My patients would ask me, Doc, where did you come up with this? Because this actually helped. This actually helped take the pain away. Where did you come up with this? I knew where it came from, but I, I never used to say it. And then something has shifted the last few years where I tell my buddies when they call me, I, I'll tell them, guys, I honestly have no other answer but to tell you the truth. God just dropped it into me. God just dropped it into me, right? Now, when you're talking with a scientific community, that kind of response, they're looking for, cite me the article from Lancet or the American Medical Journal or from some acclaimed research study to back up why you're moving this way. But when all of those things are insufficient, we have to be able to look to the author of life, to, to the creator who understands every cell, organ, system um, in our entire being, who breathes every life, gives us every heartbeat, and say that when we come to the limit of what man has to offer, God takes over. God takes over, and he is the only one who can breathe stuff from the other side in those moments. And so for me now, I actually am very conscious about telling people, God dropped that in me. <laughs> and, and some of the, my coworkers are believers, some abhor God with a passion. And so yet I have to tell my patients and my colleagues, God dropped this in me. That's how I figured it out. There was no other way. I have no study or journal to back it up. I tried it because the Holy Spirit put that thought in me and I, I, I gave it to the patient and the breakthrough happened. All right. And then I want to go with, share with you the third point. Then Moses, 
He raises his hand and he struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as a whole, as holy in the sight of Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them, right? Now, Moses here, so we, we saw that, you know, he misrepresented God. We saw that he, um, used the word we like the miracle depended on him. And thirdly here, he didn't have faith. He didn't have faith that God could operate with him in a new way. See, before Moses was always used to the anointing flowing through his staff. The staff had been the instrument through which Moses parted the sea. He brought water even uh, from, from the rock at Meribah before. And all the wonders happened with Moses using his staff as the instrument of anointing. Now Moses didn't believe here that God can actually do that again. And so rather he reverted back to the only way he knew how. Instead of trusting God at his word, he figured that there was something magical about his staff his rod that was through, and that's how the anointing flowed. And so he strikes the rod twice. Instead of just speaking to the rock as God commanded, he strikes the rock twice. And this God receives as an insult. This is offensive to the holiness of God. You know, God was trying to communicate to the entire nation of Israel that that his power was not limited uh, in, into a staff, it, his power was actually him himself. And if he said, all you got to do is speak, that, that's all you need to do, speak. Um, whereas he had asked Moses before to strike, he was asking Moses here simply to speak. And Moses failed to do that. And God took that as an insult and said, I am not allowing you to go into the promised land because you have misrepresented me, because you have put the emphasis on we as a, on a human level in terms of playing out the miracle, and you have not trusted that I could operate my anointing differently. It's not limited to your staff. God wanted Moses' faith to be made manifest through speaking and not striking. As we close today, you know, I want to share with you um, that I'm taking this to heart just as much as I'm sharing this with all of you. You know, at work um, in these last few weeks, um, there were times that I was dealing with a very stressful situation um, over someone uh, that was causing a lot of problems and hurting a lot of people within our department. And every part of me wanted to do, wanted to strike, wanted to rage out in anger. Um, But as I prayed into the situation, I heard God's voice. And the Lord said, just wait and just speak when the time comes. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't need to manipulate. I didn't need to get involved. I didn't need to do all the things that I would have normally done in my striking motion. All I had to do was just wait and speak God's truth in his light when the time came. 
my daughter, Ariella, um, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um, taught me a really great lesson about knowing when to speak um, and knowing when to strike. Out of the mouth of a three-year-old, I was convicted. You know, I was struggling with a condition called benign positional vertigo, and I was just all the time feeling like the ground was shaking and moving as I was suddenly getting up. And the doctor in me knew that for benign positional vertigo, you have to do a set of exercises to to help resolve the situation. Uh, and it usually takes weeks, a few days to weeks for it to come to resolve. But what happened was we're training our daughter right now to have um, childlike faith, to expect God to move immediately. And so what happened was um, Ariella basically told us that um, she prayed over me one night. And she prayed and said, after she was done praying, she said, Daddy, um, I'm going to pray that um, Jesus make make Daddy's dizziness and head head problems go away. And she laid her hands on me and she prayed. And after that was done, she opened her eyes and she asked me, Daddy, is your dizziness gone? Are you feeling better? And the doctor in me wanted to tell her, not yet. I wanted to tell her, I wanted to tell her, hey, baby girl, it's going to take a few weeks and days for me to do the exercises. But my wife looked at me and she said, you know, trust the child's words. She knows when to speak. Just believe it. And and so I said, yes, Ariella, my dizziness is gone in Jesus' name. And lo and behold, it snapped that very second, even though I had been enduring this for the last few weeks. Through the mouth of babes, I learned what it meant to just speak and not do. I didn't have to do any of the exercises. I just had to speak it. Maybe this morning as we close, you are at home feeling like Moses. Maybe you feel like you've blown it. Maybe you look back on your life now and you feel like you have failed to act when God told you to strike. And maybe you've struck when God simply said to speak. You know, the fine, the good news is God is gracious. And in the final chapter of Deuteronomy, God takes Moses to, uh, at the age, ripe old age of 120, he takes him to, to Mount Nebo. And from the plains of Nebo to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho, there the Lord showed him the promised land. And he says, I will let you see the promised land with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. That honor would belong to a young man named Joshua who would be filled with the spirit of wisdom. The psalmist puts it this way. The psalmist says today, Psalm 95, verses 8 through 11, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your answers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen all what I have done. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, 
They are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. They shall never enter my rest. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of us right now as we close this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will grow us and train us in this place of wilderness to be a people that know how to enter your rest. Lord, that you would train us despite these unfavorable circumstances, despite all our all our places of permanence being threatened, despite the wandering in this season. I pray, Lord, that you would sharpen us, that you would train us, Lord, that you would give us the ability, Father, to know when to speak, that you would give us the ability to know when to strike, and you would give us the ability to know when to be silent. Lord, as you mature us in our walks, Lord, help us to understand, Father, what it means to be ambassadors of you in every way, the responsibility, the enormous responsibility that comes with that, what it means to be a holy priesthood, what it means to represent you and your heart to the lost world, what it means for us to shine glory unto you instead of ourselves, what it means, Lord, to trust that that your anointing can flow in many different ways, just as you say. Help us, Lord, to know when to speak, when to stay silent, when to strike. Lord, the manifestation of our faith mattered to you in the time of the prophets of old. It mattered during Moses' time, and it matters to you now. Lord, may we be found to be ambassadors that carry your torch in a way that brings you glory, in a way that brings you honor in a way that we are able to bring this wonderful light that you have given us into all the dark places, Lord. Help us to carry that burden with great responsibility, with great joy, and with great obedience. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.